0: You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. This morning we're in Matthew, chapter 22, and we're going to read beginning at verse 15. We'll read down to verse 22. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and took counsel together about how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any. Therefore tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their wickedness, said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his blessing. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege it is to declare your glory as we declare the glories of your Son. Lord, as we've just sung together this morning, there is nowhere for us to go to know the truth apart from Jesus. In Him we find eternal life. In Him, we find Eternal your Word is open to us and accessible to us and becomes our food and our wisdom, the pathway for our feet. We gather today, Lord, as Your people, a people who have experienced Your mercy and Your grace in Jesus. We thank You that we are a forgiven people, a reconciled people, a justified people, a secure people on our way, to our glorification where we will be conformed to the image of Christ in all of the fullness that you have planned for us. We thank you for these things. But on this side of glory, Lord, we gather in obedience to your word and we gather because we need to. We need this time together of instruction in your word. We need the time that we have to rehearse the truth together in song and in prayer and in conversation. Lord, these, these are vital things for your people. And so this next hour where we open your word together and worship you through preaching, would you do, Lord, what only you can do? Would you, would you take this time and make it edifying? Would you take this time and make it effective? We thank you, Lord, for the patient, faithful, steadfast way that you love us. You're at work in our lives every moment of every day. So that we've not just been saved by you, we are safe in your hand. All of these things we rejoice in, all of these things we give you thanks for. And we ask now your blessing on this next hour as we declare Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The chief priests and the elders challenge the authority of Jesus. He cleanses the temple one day returns the next day, he's teaching in the temple, and they approach him, and they question him, where does your authority come from to do these things that you do? And they're referring to everything that he does, healing people on the Sabbath, teaching the things you teach, doing what you did in the temple yesterday. Who gave you the right to do these things? From where does your authority come? What is the nature of your authority? Following that challenge, Jesus gives three parables. We've studied these together. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the vineyard. He's teaching them through these three parables that His authority is what He's already told them about earlier in His ministry. The parable of the vine growers and these parables that demonstrate the authority and the coming judgment that they're going to meet with. Standing before them is the judge of all the earth. Standing before them is God in human flesh, so that He has the right to assess them and to warn them. This is what He's doing. And so following the parable of the wedding feast, now they want to entrap Him. And what you have are three attempts on the part of a variety of religious opposition, three attempts to entrap Jesus. They, they desire His death. They plan to kill Him. They're just looking for an open door, fearing the people, not wanting to have to deal with some sort of uprising. They're just looking for their opportunity. And so they come seeking to entrap the Lord Jesus. And this morning we're going to look at the first attempt to entrap Him. But as we look at these three attempts, I want you to bear in mind that while each of these provides multiple lessons, and many of those lessons help us to see ourselves. There are going to be lessons that help us to look at ourselves and examine ourselves in each of these accounts there's really one primary thing we're meant to look at, and that is we're meant to focus on Christ himself in this attempt to entrap Jesus. We see Jesus and of all the things we can learn about our Lord through these three scenes that we 're going to study that I think the the number one thing we're meant to see is His wisdom. What kind of authority do you have? Who gave you the right to do this? Well, just take note of His wisdom because what is on display is divine wisdom, a supernatural wisdom, a unique wisdom that belongs really only to Him. His answers will confound them. His answers will disarm them. His answers will expose them. They come hoping to expose Him. They come hoping to entrap Him. But the answers that He gives them end up exposing them. Until finally, at the end of these three encounters, they just stop asking questions. Matthew 22, verse 46, And no one was able to answer Him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask Him any more questions. What kind of authority is this? It's a kind of authority that closes your mouth even as He announces your spiritual condition and nature and the judgment you're heading toward if you do not repent. In the face of Him exposing you, you can't say anything. This is the nature of the wisdom that you're meeting with. So we look at the first of these scenes in which they try to entrap Jesus. We'll look at these verses under five headings. I'll just announce the headings as we come to them. First of all, notice with me the plot. The plot, beginning with verse 15, verse 15 and 16. Then the Pharisees went and took counsel together about how they might trap Him in what He said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, let's just stop there. First of all, notice who it is that initiates this plot, the Pharisees, the goal of what they're plotting to trap him in what he says, to put him in a situation where the tide will turn against him. This is what they're trying to do. This is a matter of planning. Verse 15 says they took counsel together. I mean, they have a meeting. They have discussions, conversations. If they had just paused for a moment to examine themselves, I mean, what kind of spiritual condition am I in when I'm thinking about how to trap someone in their words? But this is what they're doing. They make a curious choice. They're not going to go have this conversation themselves. They're going to do it through disciples, trainees, men on their way to becoming Pharisees. Verse 16, they sent their disciples to Him. Why? Why why do they not want to be personally involved? Well, I mentioned earlier that they are very much aware of the crowds, of the people, of their delight in Jesus, even though they don't fully understand Jesus, most of the crowds. They still thought highly of Him. Matthew 21, verse 45, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard His parables, they perceived that He was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest Him, they feared the crowds because they held Him to be a prophet. So maybe the reason they're sending disciples is they don't want to be in the center of this picture if indeed the tide turns. They don't want to be seen as the one's standing behind it, though they are the ones standing behind it. Or maybe there's another reason. Maybe they think that Jesus will be more open in His comments with disciples than He would be with them. Maybe they're hoping that He'll be not so on guard with disciples as He would be with them. Once again, we're introduced to something we see multiple times in the gospel accounts, and really throughout the Word of God. And that is that when you hate the truth, it forms strange friendships. People who can't get along with each other on any other ground can all of a sudden find agreement with each other on this ground that they hate the truth. They hate Christ because they send their disciples, verse 16, along with the Herodians. That's a strange friendship. Who were the Herodians? They are mentioned three times in the Bible, twice in Josephus, so we find mention of them twice outside of Scripture. It seems that they were a Jewish political party that sympathized with the Herodian dynasty, so the Herodian rulers, which means they were more sympathetic toward the Roman government. They felt like through Herod there was some progress being made. So you have the Pharisees who hated the Romans and you have the Herodians who are more sympathetic to the Romans coming together in this plot to entrap Jesus. And if you wonder how the friendship was formed or why these two groups would cooperate with each other, well, because Jesus is a threat to both of their interests. Jesus is certainly a threat To the false religion represented by these religious leaders and he is also a threat on the political front to Herod. At least it seems to be that way to them. They don't understand Christ is not ushering in a political kingdom at this time, but they view him as a potential threat to their aspirations when it comes to their status with Rome. So combining against Jesus, politics and religion. Religious loyalties from the realm of false religion and political loyalties, both represented in passionate people. So if you want to ensnare someone with their words, ask them difficult questions, controversial questions, debated questions in the presence of passion-filled people. There's your recipe to set a fire and this is what they're hoping to do. This is the plot. Notice, secondly, the test. Now they carry out the plot. What do they do? Verse 16, ask him a question. Teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. By the way, that just simply means we, we view you as someone who's not concerned about what others think for you're not partial to any. Therefore, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a tax to Caesar or not? Now, before you get to the question they ask, you meet with flattery, don't you? They want to set the stage so that Jesus will give them an answer that they can use. And so they they believe again that he'll be more open perhaps more transparent if they send a message these are just disciples of the Pharisees perhaps you know he's having an influence on the disciples he's not having on the group itself so we're really really interested in you i mean we really think highly of you we really admire you teacher respectful address we know that you're truthful We know you to be an honest person, and you teach the way of God in truth. We we, we believe that you're teaching the truth about God and His Word, and you're courageous. You're not a respecter of persons. You don't look at the face of men, the face of people. They don't believe a word they're saying. At least they don't believe it in a way that's admiring Him. Here is their nature on display. They are lying. I mean, even if they believed that they were representing the cause of God, shouldn't it inform them that you're making use of lies in the name of serving the God of truth? What is amazing about their flattery, of course, is every word they said is true. Jesus was perfectly truthful, God in human flesh, the perfect man. He was perfectly truthful. He did teach the way of God in perfect truth. And he was not intimidated by people. He wasn't speaking to please man, he was speaking to please his father. So every word they say is true, they just don't believe it. Hypocritical liars making use of flattery. By the way, flattery should never characterize us as the people of God. We are never to be flatterers. To say something nice to someone that you mean is perfectly appropriate. To say something nice to someone that you don't fully mean or to somehow win something for yourself is what characterizes wicked people. Proverbs 29 verse 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. How do you know someone's trying to entrap you? They flatter you. Proverbs 26, verse 28, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. And yet, in a way they surely didn't intend, they are testifying to Jesus, aren't they? So you say, okay, and rightly so. They're lying, and they're flatterers. That's right. They don't really admire Him. That's true. But let me ask you, why would you flatter Him in this way? Why do these qualities come to your mind at all, right? Why, if you're going to flatter someone, flatter Christ, why do you say, we know you tell the truth? Why do you choose that for your flattery? We know you represent the way of God in truth. Why do you choose that for your flattery? We know that you're not a respecter of persons. We know that you're not a people pleaser. Why do you choose that for your flattery? Because though they don't admire Him instinctively, they know those things are true. When Jesus comes to their minds, this is the sort of thing that they see. This is what certainly the the crowds recognize, but also at some level, this is what they really knew to be true too. So they come to Him with flattery. But it all is meant to function as a way to set up their trap. Verse 17, Therefore tell us, Because we know you're going to tell the truth. We know you're not going to care what anybody thinks. Come on, Jesus, say something we can use, is what they're aiming at. So tell us, therefore, what do you think? Give us your view. Is it lawful to give a tax to Caesar or not? Now think about how this question would function as a trap. This had to be a debated question at the time. So it's already a matter of controversy out there in the public square. In fact, the controversy is evident by the fact that standing right in front of him asking the question are representatives of two very different perspectives. Right there, the Pharisees would probably say, no, we shouldn't, and then you have the Herodians, who certainly would say we should pay taxes to Rome, there they are, representing two very different worldviews, ready, you know, prior to the internet, prior to television, prior to radio, ready to disseminate his answer. And in their minds, whichever way he answers, they've got him. James Montgomery Boyce comments, they thought that if Jesus said it was right to pay taxes, they could discredit Him with the people who hated Rome and for whom these taxes were a much resented burden. He would lose an enormous amount of popular support and could be dismissed as a collaborator. He might even be refused as the Messiah because one of the functions of the Messiah was to drive out any occupying power and establish the Davidic kingdom. On the other hand, if Jesus said they should resist Rome by refusing to pay taxes, then His enemies could denounce Him to the authorities as a dangerous insurrectionist. My, how wise we are. How crafty. We've got Him. We've greased the skids into His own demise by telling Him how wonderful He is and now He's going to give us His straightforward answer, and no matter what He says, He's in trouble. The plot that leads to the test. Third, notice the exposure. The exposure, verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their wickedness, said, Why are you testing Me, you hypocrites? Knowing their wickedness, the Spirit of God through Matthew identifies this for exactly what it was, great wickedness. The flattery, the question, behind all of it is a desire to see Him murdered. These are murderers. They are deceivers. This is a straightforward case of deception. Lying murderers who want to see Him destroyed. This is wickedness. But Jesus also makes clear, he exposes the fact, it's a test, it's a a trap. Why are you testing me, he says. Why are you testing me? Perazo is the word, to attempt to entrap through a process of inquiry. This is not a question you're giving me to learn something from me. This is a test, this is a question you're giving me simply to, to bind me up so that you can carry me away to destruction this is nothing but an attempt to entrap me jesus says it he's not fooled is he he's not being led astray by their flattery he sees it for exactly what it is in fact he exposes them as hypocrites why are you testing me you hypocrites and here's what's interesting to me at this point jesus could have refused to give an answer And having exposed them, not only would he have been perfectly fine to do that, they would have known it. I mean, they themselves would have had to acknowledge. You know what? He just sniffed us out. He knew what we were up to. So he didn't give us an answer. He could have said, I see exactly what you're doing, so I'm not going to give you any answer. And nobody could have blamed him for doing that. But that's not what he does. He says, I see you. I know exactly what you're up to. You're lying, murderous hypocrites. So let me give you my answer, which proves he's exactly—he is in truth what they flattered him to be. Right? He is someone who's going to give them the truth. He is going to reveal the the, the true way of God. He is someone who is fearless and courageous, and he. He's not intimidated by the faces of men. He's going to give them an answer. They don't deserve an answer, but He's going to give them an answer. The plot, the test, the exposure, He's exposing them. Fourth, notice the answer. Verse 19, show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, a day's wage, right? And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? But look at the coin. Whose image is on the coin? Whose inscription is on the coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The coin, a creation of Rome, existing in the interests of business, commerce, taxes that benefit the Roman Empire, representative of human government, which God Himself has ordained. What belongs to Caesar, you're fine to give to Caesar. But then he adds, however, what belongs to God, you give to God. Our Lord could have stated this in a different way. He could have said, Bring yourself here. Whose likeness is on display in you? Whose signature, as it were, is on display in you? Whose handiwork are you? What has come from Caesar, give to Caesar. But what has come from God, you are God's work. You are God's creation. You devote to God. Give yourself to God. And by the way, whenever these two interests come into conflict that which belongs to Caesar and that which belongs to God, your devotion is owed to God. We will obey God instead of men. This is what our Lord is teaching. He is telling them, yes, you can pay your taxes, but not in a way that would ever, ever rob God of what He is owed from you. This same teaching has unfolded, as you know, in the New Testament. We heard it read earlier in our Scripture reading. Let me read it again, Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Let me just take one, one moment here to pause and say this. These debates have never stopped raging throughout cultures, have they? They still exist to our own day. We, we met with this during the COVID crisis. When the government was giving guidance that would require churches to close doors until we better understood what was going on with the COVID virus. In some places, thankfully not here, but in some places it was demanded that churches remain closed. And so pastors had to make a decision. Do we obey the government on this or do we open the doors of the church and do we meet together? And some were even put in jail because they refused to to listen to the government, and they opened the church's doors. And what that led to were evangelicals. I'm not talking about now people who don't know Christ. I'm talking about people who know Christ. A debate among people who know Christ. Did those pastors do the right thing? Should the church have just remained closed until the government said we could open? Or were the pastors who led their congregations to open the doors sooner, were they right to do so, even if it meant violating government orders, even if it meant going to jail. That debate has raged on till right now, believe it or not. People still talk about that. So Romans 13 says, "'Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, "'for there is no authority except from God, "'and those that exist have been instituted by God. "'Therefore, whoever resists the authorities "'resists what God has appointed. "'And those who resist will incur judgment, "'for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad.' Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. God has ordained human government, systems of government, for the good of humanity. And that includes the power of life and death has been given to the state. The power to bear the sword. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. God calls us to be submissive to governing authority. That is the rule. That is the pattern. For because of this, Paul writes in Romans 13, 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That is the pattern for God's people. You say, is there ever a time when you don't submit to governing authority? Yes. When? When you're called to disobey God. And only then you give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. You give to God what belongs to God. And if those two ever come into conflict then your allegiance is to God and to His Word. It's a marvelous answer, isn't it? It requires judgment, doesn't it? But it's clear and it's right and it's the way of God in truth. Let me ask you a question. When you hear the answer of Christ, did He tell them not to pay their taxes? Did He tell them not to pay their taxes? What's the answer? No. Did He tell them they could pay their taxes? What's the answer? Yes. But do you know that later, in the mock trials of our Lord, they said that He said just the opposite? Luke 22, verse 66, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But He said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Jesus never did any such thing. Liars, murderers, hypocrites, flatterers, setting a trap, thinking they have him. No matter how he answers, It's going to be the end of him, but divine wisdom on display as he tells the truth, just as it is, without respect of persons, and they have no answer. They have no answer. Look at verse 22, notice fifth, the outcome. What's the outcome of this? And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. It's not going to be the end, next week we'll see, or two weeks from now, we'll see the second trap set by the Sadducees, but for the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, the matter is over. They can't answer what He has answered. Luke described it this way, Luke 20 verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch Him in what He said. But marveling at His answer, they became silent. The wisdom of the Son of God on display. What do you do with this account? What is God wanting people to see in His Word when He preserves this for us? Why does Matthew include it? What does the Holy Spirit pointing us to, aiming at, as we come face to face with with, with such an account. Let me ask you, do you see what the Father wants you to see about His Son? These men are inexcusable. They've asked, by what authority do you do what you do and say what you say and teach what you teach? And He demonstrates what He had told them clearly earlier by just assessing them and warning them. They're standing before their judge. This is God in human flesh. There's the nature of the authority and the source of the authority. It's heaven. Remember, he asked them, how about John the Baptist? What was the source of his authority? And they wouldn't answer because they knew that the answer they would give was in conflict with what the people thought. Their minds are on this level, not this way. Horizontally focused, not vertically focused. He's exposing them even as they seek to do Him ruin. He exposes them so that now as they try to entrap Him, we won't listen when He tells us of His authority. We're going to ruin Him. We're going to destroy Him. We're going to murder Him as they seek to entrap Him. They are exposed. Here is another piece of evidence as to who He is. Will you believe? Well, I'm asking you. Can you see who Jesus was and is? Can you see what the Father wants you to see about His Son? Do you see that even His enemies have to pay tribute to Him, even though they do it involuntarily? They don't want to. But they speak words about Him that for them it's flattery, but in in reality it's the truth. There they are giving witness to the true character of Christ though they would never want to. Do you know that every enemy of God and every enemy of the Lord Jesus will one day pay tribute to Him? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ of God and He is Lord of all. Do you see... That he always judges them perfectly, even as they try to pretend that they're not what he knows them to be. They're trying to flatter him. They're trying to give the impression that they're admirers of his. They don't want him to see that they hate him, but there he is perfectly assessing them. Why are you testing me? Why are you seeking to entrap me? Which is exactly what they were doing. You are hypocrites. You wear a mask. And so there is the Lord bringing men face to face with who they really are even when they don't want to admit who they really are. Isn't this what happens when the Word of God goes forth? Isn't this what happens every time we open the Bible together? Isn't it true that the Word of God brings us face to face with who we really are even when we don't want to admit who we really are, who has the power to do that in human lives, the Son of God, through the preaching of the Word of God? do you know everyone who has ever been saved has heard the voice of the Son of God, not audibly, but spiritually in their hearts, as the gospel has gone forth, the call of God to be saved is the call of the Son of God himself. So as the Word of God goes forth, who brings people face-to-face with their true sin problem? Who brings people face-to-face with their true lost condition? Who brings people face-to-face with their need to repent and turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation? The Son of God is calling sinners today as the glory of the Son of God is put on display in verses like these. You recognize the voice? bringing conviction to your heart? Do you recognize the voice of the One pointing you to your need for forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation with your Creator? It's Jesus speaking to you as the Word of God goes forth. Do you see that the hatred they have for Him will in the ultimate sense ruin them, not Him, No man took his life. He laid it down voluntarily. He knew exactly what he had come into the world to do, to seek and save the lost, to be the Lamb of God whose blood would be the payment to take away our sins. Jesus is telling his disciples before he ever arrives in Jerusalem, here's exactly what is going to happen to me. This is not some accident. This is This is a divine plan being worked out. The decrees of God marching through history and time, accomplishing exactly what God meant to accomplish. Jesus lays his life down to save people like us. He's not in danger. Three days later, he's raised from the dead bodily. He's ascended into heaven. He's enthroned at the right hand of his father, and he rules and reigns over all things, and he's coming again, and every human being will acknowledge him for who he really is. He's not in danger. You are, if you don't know him. God sits in the heavens, he laughs as men conspire against him. Laughing as these Pharisees got together. Let's get our plan hatched now. What are we going to do? Are we going to trap him? God laughs. And they walk away exposed. But I want you to know something, my friend. If you don't know Christ, all your arguments, all these high and lofty arguments you think you have against the gospel and against the church and against Jesus, do you know heaven laughs? Jesus is not in danger. His church is not in danger. You are in danger. So that these men who hated Christ were actually stumbling on Him, destroying themselves, as they seek to destroy Him, and one day He will represent their final destruction. Anyone hearing me today in this room or anywhere else and you have hatred in your heart toward Jesus, you have refused the gospel, your parents know Jesus, they have prayed for you and taught you, your friends know Jesus, perhaps a husband or wife has brought you here today, they know Jesus and you have refused to bow your knee to Christ and be saved, I want you to understand You are the one in need. You're the one in weakness. Not the believer, not the church, certainly not Christ. You're the one who is in danger. And you continue on in your hatred of Jesus and you'll discover one day you did Him no harm. But you refuse the only one who could save you from the harm of the wrath of God. You refuse the very one willing to rescue you, deliver you, forgive you, and make you new. And if you don't repent, you'll go to your grave being destroyed by your hatred for Jesus. Being destroyed by your hatred for Jesus. Do you see His wisdom that confounds every weapon formed against Him proving that He is the Son of God and the Savior of the world? Do you see what the Father put this in His Word for, that we would see His Son for who He really is so that you have turned from your sins and put your faith in Christ. And if you have, as I said, we gather as the church. Most of the people in this room, you know these things. You have believed these things. Don't you rejoice to know you're safe? Don't you rejoice to know that your Savior went through this voluntarily, was never in danger from that standpoint. To deliver you, to rescue you, to save you. And now, though we live in a world full of hate for God and hate for His Son and hate for the church and hate for the truth, we could not be any safer than we are. Because those who kill the body can't do anything to us afterward. Fear Him who can cast you both body and soul into hell. Fear Him. The church is safe in the hands of God. Trust in Christ. I exhort you with all my heart, if you haven't yet trusted in Christ as Savior, trust in Him today. How near is salvation to you? As near as your own heart and mouth. Because if you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, the only Savior given to men, that He's been raised from the dead, He's alive and able to save you forever. If you cry out to Him from your heart and confess Him as Lord, He will save you. Salvation is as near to you as your own mouth and heart. And the church exhorts you to put your faith in the one whom we have amazingly and graciously come to know. None of us in this room are saved because we deserved it. We're saved because God had mercy upon us. The grace of God, the love of God, explains the salvation of even one sinner, much less a church full of sinners who've been saved by the blood of Jesus. The church would say, Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for these scenes in which we see our Savior as He was walking on this earth, making His way to Calvary, making His way to the cross, Where he then would lay down his life, a sin sacrifice that our sins would be paid for. All the sins of all those who will ever put their faith in him. Jesus died for us. We are witnessing in these verses great mercy as well as great warning. Warning when our Lord identified these people for who they really were, but mercy in that He identified it. And if they would ever recognize who was talking to them and turn from their hatred to embrace His love, they would be saved. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone hearing me who hasn't loved Your Son, perhaps even they've experienced great bitterness in their heart towards Your Son, I pray that in Your great mercy they would turn from hatred to embrace Your love and they would be saved. We, Your people, rejoice in our Savior. We rejoice in our King. We rejoice in our Great Shepherd. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe and confess, our Heavenly Father, what You have revealed about Your Son. Jesus is Lord.